Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to a new episode of Broadway Breakdown after a long hiatus, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Tesori Hour, covering all five Broadway musicals of Broadway composer Miss Janine Tesori. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts, and with me today is is a dramatic writer. She's a playwright. She's a director. She's a nerd. She's a dramaturg. Please welcome Miss Jesse Field. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Matt. It's so lovely to be here. So lovely to have you. Um, so podcasts are famously a visual medium. So of course, of course. And granted, I might use some of our footage for you know. Uh, advertising purposes for this episode. But for anyone who doesn't follow either one of us on Instagram and hasn't seen the video, let me set the scene. Um, Jessie has beautiful twinkling lights above her that's making her glow like an ethereal garden nymph. Wow. And I am in my- podcast this is. And I am in my Disney onesie because (laughs) I barely got out of bed today. Um, I realized yesterday that I'm getting older because I slept weird and my lower back got super sore and tight, so I couldn't do anything. So I decided to sleep in today and now my back is great, but I am so tired. So (laughs) I am- Deeply relatable mood, Matt. My Uh, goodness. (laughs) I will not tell you my age, but I bet I am older than you. (laughs) Oh, I highly doubt that. I don't think anyone's older than me. Well, that would be a lovely twist to finally meet the first person to be younger than me. Is this the movie Orphan where we both find out that we're 55? Oh my God. I feel like (laughs) it is. (laughs) Well, speaking of being older than we think we are or younger than we think we are, Jesse, what musical of Mr. Stories are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Thoroughly Modern Millie. Now, Jesse, what is your history with this show, if you have any? Yes, great question, Matt. Well, I'll tell you a story. The story is... I was uh, beautifully asked to be on this podcast right here today. And one week ago, Matt sent me an email with a a lovely collection of links to a series of resources on Thoroughly Modern Millie, because although I have loved the musical theater since I was perhaps 12 years old, I have just never seen the show. I watched it this week. I looked up every single thing I could about it. I listened to the soundtrack. I formed a thousand opinions. for, from this musical from, I believe, 2002. Mm-hmm. So time, times are different now than they were then. And I am coming at it from now. So I'm very excited to talk about a very popular and successful musical. Yeah, it is very popular. Uh, my experience with this show. So I also I have been a musical theater fan since a very, very young age, famously so. And mm-hmm. I grew up in the city. So I got to see a lot of shows that were coming out at the time. And I do want to say uh, for the young theater crowd, the, the people of my generation and maybe a few years older, like this was a very big deal, this show, specifically 
uh, the star making turn of Miss Sutton Foster. It was just, it was a story too good to not sort of lean into. And she was so good in the show. It, was, it just felt like the perfect star vehicle for her. It was also a show that came out at the right time because it was a few months after 9-11 and it was, it was carefree. It was a love letter to New York City. And everyone's like, I don't want to think about dark stuff, which is why like you're in town, got all these like technical awards for writing. But Millie was like, oh, we're going to give you musical. So it was it, it, it was a for theater fans of a certain age. It was a big cultural moment. Um, and I think it's hard for some of us to remove those nostalgia glasses when we review it. But I think it's important to to determine the things that have aged well and the things that haven't. Uh, other fun facts, speaking of things that have not aged well, I did do this show once at the prime age of 16 at beloved theater camp Stage Door Manor, which oh is my. actually yeah home ground for Janine Tesori. She was a music director counselor there, and she famously did the arrangements for the Our Time Cabaret. Anyone who is familiar with the Our Time Cabaret knows what I'm talking about. It's the opening number where she mashed up a million different Broadway <laughs> show tunes. Anywho, we did Thoroughly Modern Millie there, and uh, I... Bet you can't guess what role I played. I'm afraid to guess what role you played, Matt. From it's the way offensive what role I played. I'll put it that way. I, yeah. I have played <laughs> two different ethnicities than my own at Stage Door Manor, which is not cute. I own the fact that it happened. It's part of my past, but I will not. Uh, I will not apologize in the sense of like it was a different time. Like it should never have happened, but it did happen. And we're moving on. I played Ching Ho. And what's worse than that is the makeup they had us do. They gave us like Elizabeth Taylor and Cleopatra heavy eyeliners, like every bad decision you can think of. Um, MTI did provide us with packets on how to learn Mandarin and Cantonese phonetically. However, at Stage Door, you have two weeks to put on the show and you're 16 and you have other things to do. So my co-star and I learned about six different phrases from the script and then just sort of mixed around mm -hmm. the words for the rest of the show, which is not cute, but we did what we had to do at the age of 16 in two weeks. You try learning Mandarin in two weeks at the age of 16. I, I just wouldn't. I just would not even try. No, should never have happened, but it happened. Should never have happened, but it happened. Um, that's to say, it's Millie. So Jesse. For anyone who doesn't know, like you, a week ago, I also want to make it very clear. Jesse has been very accommodating on this podcast. She first she was like, would love to do it. I'm a big fan of Fun Home. And I'm like, who isn't? It's the best musical mm -hmm. of the 21st century. Then I said, on the on the chance you don't get Fun Home, because I was already talking to two other people at this point who had sort of put their pins in it. Of course. Yes, it, it was pretty much like first come, first serve. And As a lesbian, I just think I'm entitled to everything gay, but that is not the case. There listen, are lots of people out there. If that were the case, I'd be starring in every Ryan Murphy show. But Ugh, what a life that would be. I mean, I would hate myself, but I'd be successful. Yeah. <laughs> Pros and cons, ups and downs. I would be in things that I don't like, but I would make money. Um, that said, uh, very accommodating. I was like, okay here's some other things I can maybe offer you. And Jesse was like, truly whatever, I'm happy. And I was like, okay, I, I hate to break it to you. You're gonna do Millie. Here is a million things for you, as Jesse said. And to her credit, she's like, great. L let's see how this goes. excuse to learn a show because I, I wouldn't have watched it unless I had something like this. And I love knowing about shows. And like, it's a really interesting piece actually on a couple of levels, especially yeah. based on when it came out, like what it was reacting to and also like what it is now 
it's not an old show. It's like very sort of recent. It's yeah, but it is it? interesting to see how quickly things turn in the exactly. times. Yeah, exactly. This is why musical theater history is so interesting because things things change. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that they did more than some shows. It's just like really a fascinating sort of. Yeah. What's the? There's some show that has the lyric "things change." Uh, yeah, there has to be. Um, it's a things change. Oh, God, why, why can't I think of it? That's gonna haunt me, Matt. Since you sang it, now it for sure exists. Yeah, but things change. Things change. But it's 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 something something something. But things change. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God, it's gonna kill me. Moving on. Um, when were you as a as a person first made aware of who Janita Sori was and what she did? Um, it is, of course, I have already outed myself as a lesbian, so it was Fun Home, that I really became aware of Janine Tesori, although I had seen, you know, like Shrek um, and that other one that escapes me right now. Um, Violet? Carolina Shane? Violet, yes. I had seen Violet. I loved Violet, but I don't think I was really aware of Janine Tesori as like a, an independent composer until Fun Home, when, mm. which of course I was obsessed with. And I was obsessed with Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori, who put together such an interesting piece. We won't really talk about this because other episode, however- That's five weeks from now, baby. Yeah, that's right. You sit in your seats, people, and wait for that good episode. But- um. It was just so interesting. I had never seen a musical like it. And I was getting into writing by that time. And I had to know everything about the people who made such a structurally different musical. Mm. Um, And then, of course, you look at Janine DeSori. And I think one of the reasons she's such a chameleon. She has written in so many different styles so successfully. And I feel like removed herself from her art in a way that like most of us writers can only dream of where I try not to exist too much in my own work. Um, She just is so adaptable she like really goes for story and character and that's why i think you get to see so many different styles from her fun home is so different from millie is so different from caroline or change is so different from violet it's like astonishing actually um no astonishing is a different sutton foster musical little woman hey (laughs) (laughs) i was proud of that one (laughs) um you know you're absolutely right i mean that is, I think the word that people always say about Janine is how versatile she is as a composer. And honestly is probably the most versatile composer today. And honestly, probably since Sondheim. I'm just like, people always say with Sondheim, you know, like, oh, you can tell a Sondheim score. And in a way you kind of can, but the man who composed Night Music is different from the man who composed Company from the man who composed Passion, like such different sounds. Mm -hmm. And Janine is, is the exact same way. I call her Janine like we're contemporaries. We're not, but just, you know, for shits and giggles, I'm going to call her Janine. Um, we love, we love. We love, we love. I mean, so little backstory here for anyone who uh, is interested. Like, you know, she didn't really begin as a composer. She, you know, began as a pianist and what got her into music was she realized pretty young, like she didn't have the patience to become like a concert pianist. She didn't want to practice all the time, um, but she had a natural ear and she had a... Uh, gravitational pull towards the piano towards music and you know all these different kinds of sounds and she did so many different things in the industry before she became like a full-blown composer she wasn't even going to go to school for music she went I think for pre-med and then like changed her sophomore year into music and you know got into music producing music engineering music directing um arrangements uh she worked in Nashville for many years which is sort of what got her the job to uh compose Violet 
which is actually, I think, the only musical she's done that was her idea. Uh, usually mm-hmm. she has gotten approached to uh, write stuff. So like, so her career trajectory here leading up to Millie, just for anyone who's like, well, where was Janine at in her career? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know this series is going to be a little less structured than the Sondheim and British Invasion guys. Sorry about it, but I did get a review that was like, oh, you talk too much and you're like leading up to the shows. Just talk about the shows already. I'm like, fine, let's see how this one goes. How dare we love Um, banter. We love banter. And listen, a four star review is better than a three star review, but it's not as good as a five star review. And they are a fan, so I shouldn't begrudge them. I'm trying to take the note and see how it goes. This is (laughs) trying something new. You can do both. We can begrudge it and take the note. Absolutely. But you look at Janine's career leading up to Millie and it's fascinating because, you know, she became a music director and, you know, did different Broadway shows and tours and then started to become an arranger. One of her biggest things was uh, the arrangements for the How to Succeed revival. She basically mm-hmm. created that version of Brotherhood of Man with Lilius White that is so iconic. So uh, iconic. My yeah. I mean, you're just like, oh, right. Everything she touches is just iconic. Mm-hmm. And uh, Violet wasn't her first musical a musical called Galileo was but she admitted was like that was me trying to be Sondheim I it didn't work out so I figured I should try something else she uh she ends up writing Violet uh for Playwrights Horizons which we'll get into in the Violet episode which comes a few episodes later as well that is her first uh prominent musical it didn't come to Broadway until many years later but um Violet is sort of what got her foot in the door as a composer in the theater world, which then got her the job to write uh, the music for Twelfth Night at Lincoln Center Theater, which is her first Tony nomination, writing the songs for a play. Hallelujah. Um, But Millie is her debut as a musical theater composer on Broadway. Uh, And that came about because Millie. So first of all, we're going all over the place. But Jesse, what is Thoroughly Modern Millie about? Well, Matt, what a great question with a complicated answer. The easiest way is it's about young upstart Millie, some sort of last name that starts with D, um, that she comes to New York, she, uh, you know, to marry a rich husband because she's a modern gal and she's not going to marry for love. She's going to marry for money like the modern gals do. Mm-hmm. She becomes a stenographer. She's going to marry her boss. She lives at a hotel that is quietly kidnapping young women and, and selling them into slavery mm-hmm. is for sure part of the show. <laughs> Sex slavery. Um, Yes, sex slavery, sex trafficking. It's very interesting. We'll talk about that at length. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, she falls in love and abandons her quest for money. And then he turns out to be rich anyway. Yeah. And many other things happen, but that is definitely the thorough gist of it. You really kind of. Many other things happen. Many other things happen. (laughs) You want to know how I always remember her last name? It's Dillmount. And it's because of the line, forget the boys, Dillmount. Get yourself a canary. Yeah. Um, And what a good jump off into an iconic song. Forget mm-hmm. about the boy. Which is the first song that Janita Story composed for Thoroughly Modern Millie. So it you did sure the same is. research I did. I also I sure a, did. I also <laughs> listened to a few different uh, podcast interviews with Janine and with Dick Scanlon. So the the journey of Thoroughly Modern Millie is an interesting one because you think, oh, another musical based off of a movie how unoriginal, which is sort of something that was, you know, trailing it when it got to Broadway. But the it is it is based on a movie from the 60s starring Julie Andrews and Carol Channing and Mary Tyler Moore. Mm-hmm. But it was a movie that was successful at the time and then became pretty much forgotten very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was 
written by Richard Morris and it kind of came about because they wanted to make a movie version of The Boyfriend starring Julie Andrews on Broadway, Mm -hmm. uh, but they couldn't get the rights. And they realized, oh, The Boyfriend isn't actually a 1920s musical. It's a 1950s musical spoofing 1920s musicals. Let's just write our own 1920s musical. So they write Thoroughly Modern Millie. And I have actually never seen the movie. It's really hard to find it. I wish we could. The trailer is insane. (laughs) Absolutely. I have two friends who have it on Blu-ray and neither one of them were in town to lend it to me this week. So all I could do is read the synopsis, uh, listen to some different discussions on it and watch some clips. And it is wild. It's absolutely wild. Um, For every issues that people have with the show, just know that the show actually takes greater pains to make it better from the movie. (laughs) They really, really did. Um, yes. They for sure <laughs> took a large step forward, even yes. just from summaries um, of what the movie was. And we'll and we'll definitely discuss it, especially in terms of the um, racial sensitivity. Like yeah. for any for all the uh, I don't call them missteps, but sort of lengths that the musical fails to reach. I guess is yeah. the right t- right way to put it. For uh, for how far it still has to go. As you said, like it is much further than the movie, like really worked hard to do better, which is which is very admirable. Um, Yeah, it feels in the world of Millie, too, because I don't know if I'm jumping way ahead here, but they were planning to do an encore's production of it in 2020. So weird that something happened that year to cancel it. I don't know what, but. Yeah, I, I slept was, in that year. Hmm. Did anything happen? In yeah, I don't know. I for sure hibernated and woke up one week ago to come here and do this podcast just for you. I knew you were glowing. Um, I know, <laughs> but they actually cast Ashley Park as Millie mm-hmm. um, and they rewrote a bunch of the script, I think, to really try to see, like, can we sort of do this better? And I think can we do this better is like part of millie's trajectory yeah. like they took a big step from the movie i think they're still trying to take big steps to preserve what's good about that show there yeah. are things about it that i think show clear care and effort and there are things about it that show a total lack of thoughtfulness but you know yeah we'll it's, it's hard because it, the show so um let me actually, so let me go back into the sort of how we yeah, got Millie please for a quick take second. us back. Take yeah, us no, back. because I know I want to talk about all of this because listening to Dick and Janine and, you know, some of the actors from the original production and sort of the things they were doing for the Encores version, it's all very mm. fascinating and yes. and very understandable at the same time while also like, you know, it's yeah, so not easy here to, to condemn anybody, just here to talk. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's very easy for a lot of people to judge from the outside when they don't sort of see what goes into the work. And, and to not, and also I will say, and I've said this before, it is very easy to do like quick flash judgments and not actually like think about the nuances of things because mm-hmm. it's just easy. It's easier to get uh, indignant about. Oh the, yeah. You know what you, you know what I mean? Always, yeah. It has to be nuanced and we have to really look at it. This is why I watched every single book scene through the grainy <laughs> secret bootleg recording that I just, I'm sorry. That's a solid bootleg. It is well filmed. They catch most of the it good is, stuff. Okay. Yeah, they do. It is a, it is a solid bootleg. Yes. Um, I am, as I said, very elderly and my hearing is bad, but I really wanted to sure. catch the book writing. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, um, and I did. <laughs> so, so Dick Scanlon, who was the book writer and uh, one of the lyr- and the main lyricist for Thrilling Modern Millie, was an actor turned writer, been there, and <laughs> he wanted he. It was his passion project to turn Thrilling Modern Millie into a stage musical because he 
loved the movie as a kid, got reacquainted with it in the late 80s, early 90s. And he's like, oh, this movie is insane, more insane than I remember. But he's like, but there's something here, sort of the idea of a young woman coming to the city, like trying to make it, uh, having her principles questioned, but also like saving the day and all these things. And spent a good long time trying to become credible enough as a writer so he could get the rights. It was back and forth with Richard Morris, who wrote Mm -hmm. the screenplay. They started doing their own version of the script together, developing it. Uh, Richard Morris would die of cancer pretty soon into the gestation process, so it became Dick Scanlon's baby. The original concept was that there were going to be no original songs. It was just going to be songs from the movie and songs from the Great American Songbook. Mm-hmm. And Michael Mayer became the director pretty early on, and they did a workshop of it at NAMT. Uh, mm-hmm. And Michael Mayer said, you know, what's interesting, Dick, is that the songs that work the best are the ones where you rewrote the lyrics. So like the speed yeah. test was something that was done very early yes. on, which is, you know, the music for my eyes are fully open to my awful situation from Pirates of Penzance. And he mm-hmm. you know, rewrote all the words. And he's like, what we should do is get somebody who can take all the songs we intend to use and arrange them in a way so they all sound like they're part of one score, which is when Janine came in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Janine thought her job was just going to be, oh, I'm going to make this sound like a whole score. And at the time, Janine DeSori was doing the dance arrangements for The Sound of Music Revival starring Rebecca Luker because Susan Shulman was directing that and Susan Shulman had directed Violet. Everything connects. It all connects. Uh, It's all about who you know. Mm -hmm. And pretty early on, they were like in the writing process they'd be like we we really need a song here that says this and we can't find anything that does that and they're like what if we just wrote one so they wrote forget about the boy and you know wrote some other things the next major workshop presentation of it was with Kristen chenoweth in 1999 right after she had won her tony for you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Um, and I think the plan was to have it go forward with her, but then she got an offer for her own TV show and money and TV is good. Hey so yo. Kristen <laughs> took it and ran. So they'd go to La Jolla with Aaron Dilly, who was sort of an up and coming ingenue in the theater scene. And Sutton Foster had been doing some readings and workshops of the show in the ensemble and go- decides to go to La Jolla in the ensemble, understudying Aaron Dilly. Some other fun people were in that La Jolla production. Tanya Pinkins was Muzzy Van Hosmere. Pat Carroll, the voice of Ursula, was Mrs. Mears. It's fun stuff. It's so fun. It's so fun. <laughs> and then, the, and then the famous story goes: you know, Aaron Dilly was sick for three or four days, and Sutton had to kind of come in during rehearsals while they were getting the show up and ready. And it just became so clear: oh this is her part. Like it's, yeah. it's, it was just one of those things where it was like right actress, the right part. She was prepared. She gets put into the show. Aaron Dilly is released back to the East coast. Um, <laughs> I know. I bet that was an awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the way that they talk about it makes it sound like it was sort of heartbreaking, but congenial. And, you know, it was very, I think for a situation that is as heartbreaking as that they handled it about as well as you could. Yeah. Um, Sun describes like, yeah, Sun describes uh, having lunch with Michael Mayer, the director, and Aaron Dilly, like, the day before they were going to tell it to the cast of, like, sitting down, discussing what was going to happen and why, letting Aaron come in and, like, say her goodbye. The only thing that kind of was bad, Sutton said, was that, like, the cast's faith was sort of shaken. They're like, excuse me, we go into tech tomorrow and we're changing our leading lady. Yeah. Yeah. That's showbiz, baby. That is. And I told <laughs> everything I is a play. <laughs> it is such a major change to make right before you go into performances. Mm. And it as an ensemble, and I say this as someone who is 
always who has always been very wary of authority it doesn't matter what role they are they could be a teacher yeah. or whatever like i'm always like what's your game what's your aim mm-hmm. here baby mm-hmm. so to have, if i were in a show out of town you know where changes are coming left and right and like okay so one minor change we're totally recasting our lead right before we go into performances i'd be like um i don't trust any of you yeah it would be very scary i would feel unsafe as an actor however i also love the spirit of like the understudy ascending that alone could be another musical oh I, I, it has been a musical it's called 42nd street get into yeah, it you're, get abso- culture. you're absolutely right <laughs> get culture Ask and broadway delivers never matt no i'm an uncultured lady yes i like the term i use uh for my listeners is uncultured fuck uh but Aww. only when but that wasn't to- as uncultured enough that you deserve that the one i feel like i want that i feel like that's fun i want to be an uncultured fuck well the the Number one example I use is when we did the night music episode, Charlotte Malfi was trying to describe Glynis Johns' singing voice. And she goes, she sounds like the mom in Mary Poppins. And I went, she is the mom in Mary Poppins. You <laughs> uncultured fuck. Really, I'd like to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. So the timing works out that they really wanted to go into the Marquee Theater on Broadway. They were promised it. And Annie Get Your Gun starring Bernie that Peters was in there. And they're like, listen, once Bernie leaves, business is going to go down the toilet and we'll close up shop by the end of the summer. Who goes into the show? But one Reba McIntyre totally revitalizes business. Everyone's like, oh my God, sold out crowds. Mm -hmm. And the New Yorklanders are like, so surprised. This show's probably going to run till the end of the year now. Uh, (laughs) We can give you the mint scoff because Tom Sawyer is bombing in there. And they're like, (laughs) And like, excuse me, the Minskoff is the most emotionless, characterless barn. Granted, the marquee is not that much better, but it is a little better. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So like, we'll they're like, we'll wait for the marquee and we'll use the time to sort of uh, re- refine the show, which they do. They basically, the words that Dick Scanlon said is that they basically rewrote all of Act One. They wrote Not for the Life of Me. They wrote Only in New York uh, and during that interim and also, famously, 9-11 happens. And the mood of New York changes and what people want to see changes. People don't want to see, you know, gritty musicals that are cynical about New York City, like Sweet Smell of Success. They want to see peppy shows like Mamma Mia or ones that are love letters to New York, like Thoroughly Modern Millie. Uh, but they did sort of come into New York with a bit of controversy. One was the fact that it was based off of a movie, that they were doing a half original score, half unoriginal score. And people were like, oh, what? You can't write a whole new score, you lazy mm-hmm. fucks. <laughs> and then also the characters of Ching Ho and Bun Fu were sort of, there was a wary glance at that because people who knew the movie knew that those characters were extraordinarily racist in the movie, mm-hmm. as was Mrs. Mears in the movie. Because in the movie... It is played by white actress Beatrice Lilly, but the character is still of Asian descent. That's why part of why it's much worse in the movie. Everything is much worse in the movie. <laughs> much worse in the movie. And Bang Fu and Ching Ho don't have names in the movie. Do you know what they're yeah. called in the movie, Jesse? Oh God, I don't. And I'm so afraid. <laughs> tell me Matt. tell me, rip off the bandaid. Okay, guys, take a deep breath. They are called Oriental 1 and Oriental 2. Ah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Once again, while the stage musical has further to go, and they were definitely trying the encores one, it was a huge step forward from the movie. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> you have to acknowledge. Listen, Never you may forget. not be on Seventy First Street, but you are not on Sixtieth Street. You you are sensibly on Sixty Sixth Street, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you walked a couple of blocks further. 
there's an in-between and every step forward matters. Absolutely. Even as there remain steps to take. <laughs> exactly. You acknowledge the progress while also encouraging more. Yes, please. Oh, yes. I should write that down. That's a good way to word that. I love that. I love that. And I do feel like, you know, eventually Janine Tesori works on soft power, which mm-hmm. feels like a cosmic reparation for anything that might have like lingered in a guilt sort of area for her. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I any guilt that she had about Millie, I think she moved on. And I don't think power. she has guilt about it. And I don't think that she should, but I, no, but it was she, just a nice place for her to arrive one day. Absolutely. She also, she said, so I was reading an interview with her uh, from Playbill at Millie's one year anniversary. They're like, tell us your thoughts on, you know, the success of Millie. She is very transparent about it. Yeah. Um, because like, I read an interview. Yeah. 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 She yeah. She's like, like <laughs> I had a baby yeah, and she's... it was very important to me to provide for my family. And mm-hmm. I felt Millie could be a hit. And I needed money. <laughs> and it was, and she got that money. And that was it is, for her it is, child. <laughs> yep, it's produced all over the all over the country. Mm-hmm. Gimme, gimme, not for the life of me. Forget about the boys oh sing everywhere. Every tenor everywhere. sings What Do I Need With Love? Like yeah. of all the shows, Millie is probably the one that makes for the most coin. Shrek Absolutely. probably is a close second. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, she was like, I thought it could be a hit. I want, and she's like, I also wanted to work on something fun for a change. And I love the yeah. 1920s. So it wasn't a total cash grab. She wasn't like, I sold out. But it wasn't her going, huh, that sounds like something that could really push me. Yeah. It was a practical decision that she found true joy and love for, I think. Absolutely. And you hear that in the score. The score is so joyful and jazz and lush and brass instruments. And it's like, if anything, when you start to feel uncomfortable, you're like, dance again. No more words for a moment. And they do every time. To raise your skirts and bob your What I will give this show a lot of credit for is that it does keep things moving and like yes. knows when to not linger on a moment anymore. Um, yes. Something that I've been hearing about a certain revival on Broadway right now, maybe starring Sutton Foster, is that they linger on certain things too long, maybe dance, maybe some yes. dance sequences go on a bit too long. Yes. And Millie is very good about like, no, like we like we love dance, but we're not going to dance for too long because then we got to go back into a song and then we got to go back into a scene and we got to go back into a dance. Exactly. And I think that speaks to like the good structure of it, because right when I do get tired of dance, I love it for like a minute. And then I'm like, sing again. Give me a new verse. What's happening in the story? There's always like a little bit more. We always come back from it in a very a way that feels very like, ah, oh, here we go. We're moving. When yeah. I was watching act two, I was like, how can we accomplish all this plot in the remaining 28 minutes? Impossible. But they sure do. Oh, and you didn't do, need any more. <laughs> yeah, do they ever? Do things get wrapped up very quickly? Yes, because it is a 1920s hijinks of a show. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's a rom-com, and once they're engaged, I don't care anymore. <laughs> exactly. Um, what is your favorite song in Millie? Oh, I hate to be, like, very... Well, it might be Speed Test. On some days, it's Speed Test, because there's something so fun about it, but mostly it's Forget About the Boy, because... Yeah. You know why? It's because of the section where all the women like it's very like forget about the boy and then she goes jimmy jimmy and then every woman sings the name of a man i mean very het but like it's so funny like 
because of course that dichotomy and that contradiction exists in a song that's like forget about him because i love him <laughs> and uh-huh. everyone is going through that and that's a fun thing in millie to feel like millie's special and she's so extraordinary and she is and everyone is just like her yeah a million think, girls come to new york i think Mil- what, while millie is such a fun, lighthearted, not trying to be super deep show. Something that I think it touches on really well is the idea that the modern mentality of thinking that loving someone is different from having independence. You can have both. People think, oh, if I love someone, that means I'm giving myself over to someone. It's like, no, you're letting someone in. Yeah, You, are, you can still be independent and, and be with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a weakness. And they use it more for comedic purposes for most of the show, but I think that is an interesting theme to touch on. And I do love yeah. that and forget about the boy. The, this mm-hmm. show, I also say, really blends the score with the other songs really well. And I think part of that oh. comes from Janine's history as an arranger. Absolutely. And her ear to hear like what something is and what it needs to be. Like if you were not total nerds like we are and you came into the, and this was the first Broadway show you ever saw and they told you it was a fully original score, I had believed them. Like, 100%. Oh, I totally thought it was an original score when I first yeah. saw it. It's It sounds completely cohesive. There are no, nothing sticks out in that way. Know, it's love we go to broadway for love and they lean in yes and love sequences spotlights yeah where you see each other across the room and then you change your mind because that's the sort of fun millie gets to have oh yeah it's your stubbornness gets in the way of you know what you should be doing um, and isn't that just love for real don't we all just get in our own ways Everything all is always the time possible. nothing more modern than that honey Ayo, and there Although, you are. I mean, do you notice also the East? No, I wouldn't say it's an Easter egg. Uh, it's pretty blatant, but like when they sing the hallelujah and you hear the theme of bum, bum, ba-dum, bum, 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 ba-dum. Yeah. Yeah, like they, the show will just throw in songs from each other all over the place. It's got a great overture. Everything just works so well. Oh my God. Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's just whatever faults the show has, and it does have faults. Yes. It, it is it is an enthusiastic and infectious kind of romp. And I think the original production, you can tell from that bootleg, like was very in control of the tone of yeah. being just dumb enough. Yes. That the silliness was enjoyable, but being smart enough to not rest on its laurels. Exactly. I, I absolutely think they nailed it that balance because it is it's silly and you feel like it almost makes fun of itself at times and that allows it i think to make its points better than oh my god if it was so serious we would be like nah yeah (laughs) because it's it's not a crazy huge point but i think that like you know every facet of love cannot be mused about enough and that's why we see so many shows about love we're obsessed we're human beings welcome to the game and it's fun to look at 1920s you know talk about like a modern show set in 1922 that came out in 2002 we love i love parallels historically like Mm. that was a modern woman then that's not a modern that's not not a modern woman now although you know we can have like better jobs and stuff but i mean for every time we talk about every time we talk about you know 
the archaic viewpoints of a character from 1922 i just point to you know look at those real housewives of beverly hills and new york like Mm -hmm. how how far have we really come you know we spin in circles history goes around and around and the language changes we come up with new slang but Mm -hmm. our feelings are the same baby especially about love yeah what do we think of millie as a main character how how do we think she fares as a protagonist? What a good question. I think in many ways, she's like a very classic musical protagonist, somebody who's easy to get behind because she's sort of got this like force of optimism, which you see, you know, like that's your Tracy Turnblads, that's your your classic character. We can be like, yeah, do it, do anything. Um, and they start her off really well so quickly. Immediately she arrives, she is robbed. Her purse is taken, her hat is taken, one of her shoes Gone. While I was wearing it, <laughs> which is hilarious, you it's know, like funny. you gotta get to the shoe, and you make the joke. Ah, if I was in your shoe, hilarious. Yeah. We, lo- we love shit like that. Sign yeah, up, you can tell Dick Scanlon used to be an actor because he's like, I have all the. I was like, I've got these one-liners in a journal over the <laughs> years. Mm-hmm. Let me give some gifts out to the cast and just throw them. I know mm-hmm. that'll get a laugh, and it does. I laughed. It's funny. <laughs> you know, she she immediately trips into the man. We know immediately she has to marry, and that is, I think, the joy of the rom com and the fun is like how. Um, but when you love her, I think the two moments that they set up at the top where you love her. One, she says, "I have a ticket back home just in case I fuck up." She immediately rips it up. Like that is a poor lady who just threw away an asset to make a point. So immediately, I'm like, "Yeah, Millie." no return ticket make it happen she gets robbed and he's like yeah cool here's your plan go home tomorrow and she's like yeah yeah yeah. no fuck you i can do whatever i want and i think it's that that makes her very engaging every time she's like no fuck you when she's like i'm gonna get my hotel room a girl's drunk and she does like she makes it happen and she's you know like fun and funny i think there's like she's not that specific like i don't think that there's she is and she isn't like she's not I wasn't like, ooh, like let's unravel the psyche of of Millie from Thoroughly Modern Millie. But I think that she is such a good way through a musical of this tone. Mm. I think she gets jokes. She really gets to be the star. It's not a show where like the leading lady is secondary to the leading man. It makes absolute sense that this was Sutton Foster's star vehicle because she gets to showcase so, so much of herself. Mm. Um, You know, and at the end of the day, it's like, and then she falls in love and Sutton Foster does a great job. <laughs> and I mean, also, like, who who wouldn't fall in love with a 26-year-old Gavin Creel? Like, that is a beautiful man. Yeah, he is a tremendous actor, although I will tell you, Matt, I would not fall in love with him. Sure. <laughs> I would fall in love would. with Miss Dorothy Parker, but there's a little something for everybody there. 12-year-old me wasn't quite sure what his sexuality was yet, but he did look at Gavin Creel and said, step on my throat, daddy. Um <laughs> That being said, no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Something like this, where it is purely a musical comedy, mm-hmm. it's light in tone. You have to get behind your characters. And Dick Scanlon talked about this in regards to the development of the show. You, it can't just be whiz, bang, joke, joke, joke. You do yeah. have to put some investment in there. And you're right. Mm-hmm. Like Hairspray is a great example of Tracy Turnblad, Good Morning Baltimore. You fall in love with her immediately. And it's not just mm-hmm. because she's optimistic. It's because she believes in herself. And yeah. it's that confidence you know, we gravitate towards confident people and it's not ego, it's confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. And it's the same thing with Millie. She's not egotistical. She's just, Mm -hmm. she believes in herself and Mm -hmm. her optimism isn't stupidity because she's not like everything will work out. She's like, I will make things work out. I can do that. I will make that happen. Mm -hmm. And 
she is she is fleshed out in the way musical comedy character needs to be fleshed out. Like we have her wants, we have her mm-hmm. desires, we have you know her pros and we have her cons. And I think in true economy, her pros and her cons are kind of the same thing. Her yes. strong-willed, uh, you know, <sighs> determinedness is also kind of uh, her fault because it keeps her from letting some people in. It keeps her from seeing mm-hmm. the bigger picture. Uh, it's she has tunnel vision in a lot of ways and that's not you know this show is as you said it's not trying to uh delve deep into the psychology of what no what if your ultimate goal is ultimately your downfall it's no yeah it it plays it for for lightness but it uh it it does not say to the audience don't worry about it's a comedy these are not people it's like no these are people Mm -hmm. and we're just not going to get too dark with it um, but I do like also there's a quick moment with Miss Dorothy in Act Two when she realizes that she's being kidnapped into sex slavery. And yeah. there's a very real moment of panic. Like the show mm-hmm. cannot make the sex slavery too real for fear of the audience being like, no, we need to get these girls out of there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, but it does have that moment to sort of show you that the authors are not like, oh, what's sex slavery? You know, it's like, no, 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 we yeah. get that it's real, but yeah. we also can dwell. dwell dwell I was gonna say dwell we can't dwell on it too much because we've got a lot of stuff in the in the fryer um yeah Yeah. at the end of the day it is not really about sex slavery all and it's just like a big swing that it's in there (laughs) it creates real stakes like uh, you know we sure forget about love at the in the part of act two where we're like where is Dorothy (laughs) yeah and I would say the movie so this the sex slavery is a lot is a plot line from the movie uh, you know, of course, of course. It is. Yeah. Well, so for anyone who's wondering, you know, Millie stays in this hotel. It's called the Hotel Priscilla, uh, which was something that, you know, happened in, you know, like 1920s to 1950s, really, was that, you know, there were these hotels for young women, uh, basically mm-hmm. like dormitories, you know, uh, where they would pay, you know, weekly rent for a room and they would share, you know, bathrooms with other young women as they sort of went out into New York to try to make it either as, as a secretary, as an actress, what have you. Um, and so Millie is staying at this hotel and the woman who runs it, Mrs. Mears, who, you know, is a giant racist Asian stereotype, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and is always played by a, a white woman in uh, makeup. And as I said, in the movie, Beatrice Lilly is a white actress playing an Asian character, which is much worse, much Much worse. worse. The musical makes it that Mrs. Mears is a failed dramatic actress Mm -hmm. who takes her revenge by selling these young women into sex slavery through the hotel. And in order to stay um, off the grid, grid, she, she has created a persona for herself of, of Asian Mrs. Mears. Now, one might ask themselves, why this persona? And you'd be right to ask. I think part of it is that it does come from the movie and they couldn't fully separate themselves from that trait. I think Mm -hmm. if you want to justify it in a way, uh, you, the way that I had tried to justify it is like Mrs. Mears is so bonkers and out there and thinks so highly of herself and her craft that she thinks to herself what's the last thing they ever thought that I would be believable as I know an old Asian woman I will I will play this perfectly and no one will ever suspect and it's you know it's that Ursula mentality of like the I'm the greatest star and I'm amazing and the humor comes from the audience being like 
you're very obvious. You're not talented. You're actually being quite racist. And it allows the audience to kind of uh, look down upon her. That said, how successful it is at that is another question. But that is the only way I could really justify that character. And I think I will go even one step further than you, shockingly, because I really am very against this part of the show in an interesting way. But I think that when you allow Mrs. Mears to literally be a white woman who is like doing a racist, like she's the villain. She yes. is literally selling women into sex slavery. That with is no how, qualms whatsoever. She no qualms, no, no remorse. No issues with it whatsoever. She She's just like, let's go, let's sell these women to sex slavery. That is the worst person you can find. It makes perfect sense to me that this white woman would then like also adopt a racist character because I don't think it's racist to depict racism on stage. Like it's, and like, because she isn't exact because she's not a white woman playing an Asian woman. She is a white woman playing a white woman playing an Asian woman. And I believe that white woman would do that horrible shit. Like oh, they absolutely. Have. we've seen it. Like <laughs> I I believe that. It's I think that the the fine line that will walk into both sides because we have like Asian heroes in this thing and we have Mrs. Mears, the worst like white person playing an Asian person, the worst villain. Mm-hmm. Um the hard thing is like what they want you to laugh at. And that's a lot of what I'll want to unpack in this because if we're laughing at like, this is the most, the worst, the most racist, the the most evil woman in the world. Great. Actually, I don't have a problem with that. I think that absolutely is horrible. (laughs) And she is supposed to be horrible. And at the end, surprise, surprise, she goes to jail, you know? So we all, the young women take her to jail. Spoiler. I know. Um, I agree with you. Don't be scared. I agree with you on that. And I do think that they are they are asking us to laugh at her, not at the tropes. And I say this for two reasons. I think One, it's both, but we'll argue later. Well, I say this for two reasons. Well, and this is why I say like how successful they are at it is another yeah, question. Yeah, that's um, but, fair. But I say this for two reasons. One is that, remember that Millie takes place in 1922. This is 40 years before Mickey Rooney does his performance in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. And it was considered problematic in 1961 at the time, but it still made it to the final cut. I don't think anyone would have issues with this in 1922, especially someone as awful and racist as she is. And then we also have her uh, subordinates, Ching Ho and Bung Fu, who are uh, Chinese. And we learn like are, are working for her because they have to, they are immigrants in America and are much more clever than she is and much more, um, empathetic than she is and have more feelings than she does and the twist in at the end of act two is that actually like the entire time she thinks that they don't speak any english uh ching ho we find out teaches himself english because he falls in love with miss dorothy and saves Mm her bun fu has been learning english the entire time and has been using it to eventually trap mrs mears at the end of act two because they're trying to bring their mother to america she says Mm -hmm. she's going to bring her to them and then he learns when she uh, says to him in English flippantly thinking he can't understand your mother's never coming over to America. And then he turns on her uh, again, having those characters be, be more, um, I don't want to use the word authentic because it's not necessarily authentic, but to be treated with more empathy than other characters in the show, I think helps in a great deal. Yes. But, uh, but I agree with you. I, th- I do think the show wants us to laugh at Mrs. Muir's, her about at her not necessarily the tropes but it is a tricky area and it's hard and you cannot determine how every audience member is going to perceive something and then on top of that I don't think the writing of her is so strong that it can uh withhold a misguided performance or direction so 
does like this does that make sense like i can yeah. it is very easy to have this character mm-hmm. get so bundled uh, bungled I, I, I don't know words get so fucked up by a bad actor by it with a bad director that it just becomes flat out racist as opposed yeah. to trying to be a commentary on racism right and and truth be told Matt like I I do think it's both things like there's a clear effort by this writing team to and you do see it in her subordinates um in Ching Ho and Bun Fu because because they are complete characters they want things there are things about them they want to help their mother come over and he's in love and are we allowed to say this spoiler say it about yeah you know you know like Chin Ho he gets to he ends up with Dorothy yeah he gets her he gets the girl he gets the girl um and that I think frankly is huge especially for Asian men who are constantly depicted as like submissive or subordinate he ultimately emerges as like a male lead in the writing. Yeah. However, when he comes out, you know, like the audience laughs at him. And I think that's a problem. I mean, like, boo, audience, um, cheer. Thank you very much. He did it. He saved her from sex slavery. Can we take yeah. a moment to please congratulate Ching Ho? Absolutely. Uh, I do however- love, I do love when <laughs> she says to Trevor Graydon at the end, because, you know, Millie is trying to marry her boss, Trevor Graydon, who falls in love with Miss Dorothy on site, only for Miss mm-hmm. Dorothy to then fall in love with Ching Ho. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, Trevor, that was puppy love, but this is the real thing. And Ching Ho goes, I die for you, Miss Dorothy. And she goes, I love that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I love that. I love, it's like, it's such a, it's a crazy line that like, I can't tell if I love that line because it's so ridiculous or if it's, be, or I don't know, you know. It's, I think it's, it's ridiculous and like, it's true, right? Like we know those people. <laughs> I die for you. I love that. Yeah, of course. I, it's an acknowledgement of something fun. And I think Millie does a lot of acknowledging. And that is why it is like a step above. It feels like an old musical, but it isn't. And these are some of the ways in which like there is more consideration towards the Asian characters in the writing for sure. And on top of that, though, I do think that they put too much trope in. And I think it creates like a tone where we are allowed to laugh at things that are racist for the wrong reasons. I usher at Roundabout, or I did before the pandemic, um, and I was ushering a show called Amy and the Orphans, short tangent. And there is this great line in Amy and the Orphans, which is about like, um, an autistic woman who goes on a road trip with her family and it's a lot of things. Um, but there's a line where they're about to go on the road trip and she says, I want to drive. And the whole audience laughs at her. And then she says to her sister, like, what? You think autistic people can't drive? And then the audience just like falls silent because they're ashamed that they laughed at what was a joke that they were supposed to laugh at and was a trap. Like, mm-hmm. think, you know, <laughs> and Amy and the Orphans really points that out to us in a way that, oh my God, as an usher, I loved watching that beat every night because the audience would freak out and reassess everything they ever felt or said. Um, and in Millie, it's such a fun time that you're allowed to just have fun. And there are things that I think where that works. And there are moments where I think it's like too much. We stay in the, the tropes too long, like the soy sauce thing. And then there's like a moment where Millie you know, where Sutton Foster says something back like in a in a an Asian accent yeah. because she's making fun of Mrs. Mears. And I'm like, yeah, but like, what are we making fun of? <laughs> well, so that's sort of the thing that kind of is, it is on the creakier end for me with 
Mrs. Mears. And I do wonder how they would approach this with encores. So like with Ashley Park in the role of Millie, yeah. they said what they they were going to acknowledge the fact that Ashley Park's Millie was Korean American. It wasn't totally colorblind casting. And it was the idea of embracing the fact that America is filled with immigrants, right? Like everyone comes from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so there would be a little more uh, of a language fluidity in that version, I believe, which yes. would have been very fascinating to see. Very and fascinating. The other thing with Ching, uh, Ching Ho and Bun Fu, I know is that I, I apologize. I don't know which is which, and it's because I'm not fluent in the language as I made very clear from my stage door days. <laughs> But they either speak in Cantonese and sing in Mandarin or they speak in Mandarin and sing in Cantonese. And that those are two very different um, mm-hmm. uh, languages. And so there was issue, there were issues at the time that from the uh, Asian community of like, do you think that these are just like one and the same? And I'm not entirely sure why they separated the two. I know that Scanlon said that they chose the language they did for the lyrics because it was more poetic and lent itself to musicality. And then you just ask yourself, why not make that also the language they speak in? Um, So again, things that, you know, maybe did not, weren't considered at the time of writing. And now you look back, like you should have considered it. And I believe they are making those steps forward to work on that. And I agree with you on Mrs. Mears. Like sometimes we live in the moment a little too long from my taste and Harriet Harris as great as she is in the role, sometimes her, the the joke comes from the fact that she says something in a racist voice, not because yes. the line itself is funny. Exactly. Um, and, to, and there is a distinction because sometimes Mrs. Mears says a really good line. For mm-hmm. example, in act two, when they put together the plan and that's, you know, the big joke when Sutton Foster says Mrs. Mears's line out loud. And I would argue that Millie isn't making fun of Mrs. Mears so much as that, or I'd rather say in Sun Foster's line delivery, it mm-hmm. doesn't sound like she's making fun of Mears. It just sounds like she is uh, regurgitating Mrs. Mears's uh, phrase the way she's always heard it, which again, you know, it's that- it's which, that, which would absolve the character, but like the production, like they're getting a lot. 100%, 100%. No, I, 100%. It's one of those things- It's an important so much, distinction. I love- Yes, love. absolutely. Um, I think it was, I think it's a smart choice on Sutton Foster's part to deliver the line in an earnest sort of like, I am a record player regurgitating the line. But as again, Mm -hmm. as you said, production wise, like, did she have to say it in the, in the racist Asian accent? No. And did they expect a laugh? And did they do it for a laugh? Yes. And then what are we laughing at? Unpack what you're laughing at. Exactly. To be fair. And, and it is a, and it is a weird situation because what she's regurgitating is the line that Mrs. Mears says every time she hears a girl in the hotel is an orphan because she Mrs. Mears only captures orphans because there's mm-hmm. no uh, contact tracing you know mm-hmm. no one to uh, look into their disappearance and exactly. every time she hears that they're an orphan she says sad to be all alone in the world which is a line in the movie and it's mm-hmm. Harriet Harris playing a racist woman doing a racist stereotype so she says it with the R's and the L's reversed and we hear it like three or four times in the show and the audience knows what's going on every time she says it. So then when Miss Dorothy disappears and her, Trevor Graydon and Jimmy get together and they're trying to figure out who all the other girls were who disappeared, what they have in common. And she goes, oh, they don't, they didn't have any money and they were orphans. And then there's a beat. Sutton Foster says the line in the way Harriet Harris has been saying the line all day long. And the audience laughs. And it's two reasons. One is that we've heard it so many times and it's now being said by a different character. And also because of the slight 
overtly slash extremely racist yeah. dialect of it. <laughs> um, and yeah. as you said, like it is sort of, it is a, it's not, I don't want to say it's a cheap laugh because the whole evening has built up to it. But in terms of the racial politics of it, it is cheap. And one wonders, should it be allowed to happen still? I think you could get away with it without the uh, racist Asian inflection and just do the like timber of voice of Mrs. Mears. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that it would absolutely work better. Like, I think that, cause you're right. It's a line that we've heard. It's an important line. It's the clue because mm-hmm. it's how we figure it out. You know, yeah. and I love that Mrs. Mears downfall is ultimately that she thinks orphans are alone, but they can make friends actually. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and, and then Mrs. Mears, and Mrs. Mears underestimates the immigrants of America. Yeah, she thinks they're stupid. And then, of course, they put it together because Millie's been there for a couple of weeks and three girls have left without saying goodbye. Like, that's yep. preposterous. You and, her sub- and her subordinates are very aware of what's going on and have been sort of tracking the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, which I actually think... So I'm trying to remember because you can't see most of the subtitles in the bootleg, unfortunately, but I yeah. believe in her first scene with Ching Hong Bun Fu, you know, she's she's talking to them in English and they're not really understanding or, you know, Bunfu is pretending not to understand mm-hmm. and she does some of her broken Chinese with them to make them get it and then she walks off stage and basically they start speaking to each other in fluent Cantonese like you hear the way she speaks to us like this dumb bitch like yeah. she treats she treats us yeah. like we're stupid and mm-hmm. I remember the audience laughing that of sort of like it was almost sort of the ease of the audience going like oh thank god like these are they're intelligent people and they're making fun of this awful woman like okay great we we can relax for a second like this show's not going to be 100 percent racist yes well and there is that care like they get yeah. to do that Ho and bunfu get like a good amount of stage time for like this the kind of characters they are like if they are really henchmen they're not like there's a lot more to them that they get time that that creates jobs for asian actors like there is good that the show did, even that they took the time to put it in Cantonese or Mandarin. Although it is weird that they picked both, they maybe should have just picked one. But you know, in the exactly. past, they would not even do that. That would not be real. They would say God knows what horrifying sound based thing based totally on a stereotype. And they're yeah. they're not stereotypes. And <laughs> and like sometimes it's played not not correct. I mean, not no. not um not kindly it's like it's It's, well so it's the trickiness of and they talked about this like the entire development of those roles was in was done in conjunction with the actors who played them the actors who originated them on broadway were a part of the creative process since like 1999 and that entire way through like scanlon and tesori talked like we like all the writing we did for those roles like we collaborated with those actors the entire time because we and wanted to make so sure. that's so important. That's Absolutely. So good. And look at that work that they get to do at a time because really we're still struggling with this and there are so few roles for actors of color. Absolutely. And the, But the double-edged sword of it is that at the same time, they also wanted the show to be very successful because, and, by, and successful, I mean like embraced by the masses. And it's that weird, uh, I don't think... I want to say dichotomy because it sounds good in my mouth, but I don't think it's the right <laughs> word. But it's that weird balance of, especially at that time where you are trying to be an honest artist, but also a business person and understand like this can only do so much good if enough people see it. But if not enough people see it, like what's the impact we're making? And so you want to be as uh, as respectful as possible while still also getting to a point where it can still be commercial 
And I think that's sort of what undoes the show today in regards to a lot of that and regards to a lot of the race relations is that part of the reason it doesn't go quite far enough is because for 2002 they had in the back of their brains well we do want this show to run so we can't go that far you know yeah and the irony of course is like that hesitation is probably what makes it less commercial today because yeah. like i would not be touching that well and you, you have to do what i think they probably are doing in encores you have to really think about it you have to change the script and you mm -hmm. have to make it a little bit better but but at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, like Bun Fu gets to be Graydon's stenographer. Like they take a moment to give him a happy ending, even though he is like a six tier character in a show with a million characters. And there's there's clearly effort. And, you know, like, I, I don't think, well, I think we should change what commercial is. Like, I think people are very afraid of trying anything new. Um, and I don't think they needed more than that. I think they just needed actually a little bit less, like to take a little bit out of the sitting well, I, in the tropes. What's interesting is that the shows that have really kind of taken off and been huge phenomenons financially are the ones that have actually taken risks. Like it's so mm -hmm. easy to say now, like, oh, Hamilton, what like an easy investment that was. It's like, no, I remember when that I show know. was coming. And when it yeah. came out, everyone was like, um, a nearly three hour rap musical about the founding fathers, what the hell? Or, you know, like mm -hmm. Chorus Line, Oh, an intermissionless musical about mm -hmm. the ensemble of a Broadway musical that deals with homosexuality, plastic mm -hmm. surgery. Like who, who's going to see that? It's so inside baseball. Yeah. And then, it and then everybody, <laughs> everybody loves it. Um, That's a secret about Broadway. I mean, not a secret at all. It's just that I think sometimes producers are so afraid of taking risks because they're so afraid of losing money that like they lose money. <laughs> like, I think that the audience is ready for a lot more than we give them credit for. I mean, one wonders do those characters really get happy endings because Ching Ho conforms to heterosexual monogamy and Bun Fu contributes to corporate America? Like, well, does do anyone get a happy ending because no one is gay? So frankly, it's already hard for me to get into. Not even one person. You but... know who gets a happy ending at the end and nothing has actually changed for her from beginning to end is Muzzy Van Hosmeer because That's right. <laughs> that bitch starts the show Rich and Famous with No Man and ends the show Rich and Famous with mm -hmm. No Man. Life is a holiday. I'm talking June through May. A nightly sellout show. And baby, I'm front row. Bye-bye, lonely nights, only nights when the two of us can coo. Skies are sunny and clear long as I'm here with you. So one of the changes they actually made from the movie is, is in regard to Muzzy and the kidnapping scene. I think we were talking about this for a second, then we got yes. derailed by so many other oh, things. This oh. was a really good change. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad it actually goes into this. This goes back into what I was saying about how Mrs. Mears has some lines that are just funny on their own. Mm -hmm. um, so when they put together the kidnapping scheme in the movie, they put Jimmy up in drag to uh, be one of the new girls in town who's an orphan to get kidnapped. And Dick Scanlon's like, that's not funny. The, like the joke was that it was a man in drag like and you go dick scanlon because that yeah. was not we were not talking about this back then like and we should have been and because mm -hmm. clearly we knew we always know we're all smart enough but that was mm -hmm. always played for jokes and it's so good they did not do that yes what they did instead was they had muzzy be the uh bait and the joke bring is back the most iconic character come absolutely. on absolutely bring her back into the fold which is so it was so smart and the joke is that like Muzzy is like Muzzy is not old. It's just that Muzzy's clearly not 20. And she's yeah. done up in such an obvious way that it's hysterical. And I mm -hmm. want to put a pin also in this moment 
to when we talk about the reviews because there's something in the New York Times review regarding this moment that actually pisses me off when I read it. I was like, Ben Brantley, do you really not understand how smart and funny this moment is? Are you that up your own ass? But anyway, they make her the bait. And when you watch the bootleg, like Shirley Ralph, just you can tell she's having a ball with it. Of like, yeah just playing up the I'm young off the bus from Kansas. He's and, having such a good time. <laughs> he's having such a good time. And like Mrs. Mears is so wary of it because she's looking at her and she's like, uh, she's like, oh, I'm an orphan. And she goes, oh, sad to be all alone in the world. But surely that was years ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then the best line is Muzzy goes, no, not at all. I came straight here from Kansas. And then there's a beat and Mrs. Mears goes, did you walk? Like, <laughs> Exactly. And that's genuinely hilarious. That's great writing. It's great writing. Yeah. And it makes total sense. She's literally, her character is what, like 50, 60? Probably trying to be 20. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, that's great. That's real. Let's also, also, um, there's a line that they made that it's not in the bootleg, unfortunately. They must they must have added it later. Um, so you find so Muzzy became wealthy because the story she tells Millie right before the big 11 o'clock number, gimme, gimme is, you know, I, the, my, the man I married who ended up being a billionaire. Uh, I didn't know he was rich. You know, I, he, I thought he was a stationer, Johnny. And then he gave me what I thought was a green glass brooch. It ended up being emerald. Learned out he was rich. We got married right away, but then, you know, he died, <laughs> but then he died. And now I'm a widow. And you find out that Jimmy and Miss Dorothy are actually brother and sister and that they are uh, Muzzy's stepchildren. Uh, and she put them out into the world to find people who would love them for them because fortune hunters are after them. Uh, and they do. But Muzzy, so Muzzy in the movie is played by Carol Channing, who has, you know, the famous line, raspberries. And in the <laughs> musical, they made it a point to make Muzzy uh, African-American. You no, know, Tanya Pinkins played it at La Jolla. Shirley Ralph did it on Broadway, eventually replaced by Leslie Uggams. Uh, and Jimmy, played by Gavin Creel, then Christian Borle is white. And when Millie makes the connection at the end of the show, she goes, and Muzzy is, and Jimmy goes, my mother. And the audience laughs. Uh, and then he goes, my stepmother. And then what they changed it to, which I really love, because I think it's so smart in regard, it goes back to what you were talking about roundabout. They changed the line to when he says, my mother. And then Muzzy goes, stepmother. And then Beach goes, I'm too young to be your mother. So it <laughs> it goes, so the audience thinks that they're laughing with the show long because they're thinking of the uh, racial uh, barrier, but the show's like, actually not what you're thinking. The joke is that she's too young to be his mother. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, why were you laughing though? Why were yeah. you laughing yeah. though? Evaluate why you're laughing everyone. <laughs> yeah. but, and I think, I, I'm not, I don't know if that was originally in the script and they just forgot to say the line in that, that night when the bootleg was night. taken <laughs> or if it was changed later on. Cause when I did the show, it was in the script. And if they changed it, I think that was really smart of them. Yeah, to and it make... speaks to something like that yeah. they are. It, it doesn't feel mean spirited, even when it is. Is what I would say about Millie. Like, yeah, it, there's there's palpable effort in the air, and like we lovers of musicals have you know seen a lot of horrifying things over the years that only grow more horrifying with time. And Millie is like a little bit different, and it does matter that it's a little bit different, mm. like. It, it speaks to progress and that they keep wanting to push it further speaks to something as well. Absolutely. Um, and know. comedy ages the worst of anything in dramatic writing because yes. what was funny in that point of time may not be funny later on. Yeah. Well, cause we, we change. I think that you yeah, know, we, hopefully we, hopefully we, we get grow. smarter. <laughs> yeah. We need better jokes that are actually funny based on wordplay or like, did you walk from Kansas? Yeah. 
That's um, a good comedy. That will hold up for all of time. Well, and so that's sort of the thing about, so one of the major things about comedy that eventually changed, some of it for the better, some of it for the worse, is like comedy used to be like, right? And you're like, set up, mm-hmm. punchline, set up, punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, and Billy Wilder was really kind of someone in film that spearheaded this was, you know, comedy coming stemming from the plot and from characters and from information yes. that we yes. knew about the situation so it's not necessarily what was said or done was funny outside of itself but more mm-hmm. funny in context situational um, comedy as ex- it were exactly um yeah. and it's the stuff that kind of is meant to be pushing the barriers that's a little that's maybe a little more touchy that ages poorly later on because what's you know groundbreaking in 1960 isn't necessarily groundbreaking in 2000 or 2022 uh so you want to try to make something that can be compact and part of its uh structure uh, part of the structure of the story in the moment and not necessarily like this bottom joke that everyone will get in that moment of time like i i have been acknowledging lately that Legally Blonde is actually a very well-written musical comedy. What ages it the most is all of the pop culture references. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Richard Simmons is our neighbor. Like that, that, that no one laughs at that anymore. Um, oh, no, yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. laughing at less and less as time goes on. Yeah. But there was a time in on Broadway in musical theater comedy, especially like from like 2004 to like 2010, where they kept on making a lot of like pop culture jokes and breaking the fourth wall kind of jokes. And mm-hmm. those are the things that have aged the worst. Yeah. Minus, yep. you know, also like the sexual racial politics of some of those comedies as well. Yep. <laughs> also that, but yeah, I mean, there's a, a, always a push and pull, I think in theater of like, you want to be current and you want to be now because theater is alive and you want it to be timeless because you want your art to persist decades after you go. Mm-hmm. And it's like a very fine line to walk and you make, you know, we see a lot of different choices being made. I think the trick with the comedy too is not to punch down. I think that's a big way we've moved forward as people is like, no longer can we just laugh at you're Asian or you're poor or, you know, you're fat. Like, God help us. Please think about why you're laughing. <laughs> you I mean, you just please can't. laugh at me because I'm poor. I would, I'm, I, <laughs> if that's the thing you're laughing about regards to me, I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> line and it's not that you're not allowed to cross it it's just that like I'm not gonna laugh if it's mean the end and I don't even know that Millie does this very much it's just there's something in the tone that comes from like the source material and Mm -hmm. they haven't like totally eradicated it yeah I think every issue that can be found with the stage version of Millie can be rooted back to the movie and as we said before, it is a weird feeling because when you root it back to the movie, it makes you appreciate how much further they went with the show while also acknowledging that it's one of it's still a weakness in the show itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I would argue like every change they made from the movie was for the better. And Agreed. and any again, any weaknesses that it has comes from like not being able to fully untether itself from its source material. Yeah. I mean, and they should have done a little bit better. However, 
they did pretty good. Like, I think it cannot be overstated. And this is what's great about this as an adaptation. Like we talk about it being adapted from a movie. I only like adaptations if they add something new. Like, I don't want to see the same thing, but with songs, because if it was already perfect, like, I don't, I don't need it again. I have the movie. I'll go watch it. Yeah. But when you change it, like, I think Heather's this is a hot take is a great example of like a movie I find boring, but a musical that I love because they really opened it up and added, I can tell you disagree. And I would love to, we'll come back and talk about it one other day they brought something new to that story and they brought something new to Millie and that to me is an adaptation that has something to say Matt is dead I think that I killed him just so you all know he's gone he's not even here anymore <laughs> everyone's entitled to an opinion uh <laughs> no I know I, it's a hot take it's no, a hot I take. I will say my issue with Heather's is interesting because you don't like the movie and that's and I think that's fine uh I love the movie. I've loved the movie for a very long time. I'm like, I'm a Winona Ryder diehard. This makes diehard. sense. Yeah. This makes sense. Um, I think my issue with the stage, I, the stage musical, yeah, the stage musical is interesting and I would apply it to sort of, um, we were talking about this before we were recording, but the wild party, like Andrew Lippa turned that poem and, and forced it onto musical, traditional musical theater structure. Mm-hmm. And whereas Lacuse is like, how do I make musical theater work for this poem? And I felt like they, for Heather's, they took the movie and forced it into a musical theater structure. So everything they do in the musical version of Heather's like is pretty, um, I don't want to say like basic. It's not that it's necessarily that it's basic, but like they follow all the constructional writing points you're supposed to do do. for a a traditional musical. Like Mm -hmm. you can look at it and go, there's the I want, there's the inciting incident, X, Y, Z. Very clear. Yeah. My issue with Heather's the musical is I feel like they do lose a lot of the acidity and the nuance of the film uh for the sake sometimes of actually punching down which i don't love like i think that the character of heather chandler is done very dirty in the stage show because while she is a monster in the movie there is also not compassion but nuance to it like the whole the whole party sequence in the movie is just such a like monstrous moment for everyone that i wish the stage show was a little braver in exploring but we're not talking about heavens. oh my god it's and it's so interesting that i have like such responses let's some other time at least uh, hang just, out and just, talk just, about i mean I'll, uh, the and scene i don't alone, disagree with you i do think that they sacrificed specificity from the movie to yes. achieve something else which is what i'm saying is interesting yeah. about adaptation absolutely but, i want to see something else and i and i want to see something new for sure mm-hmm. um I, I with heather's like i the moment i always describe is like i always bring it back to the party because it's again it comes down to the details of what made Heather Chandler such like a goddess like creature in her high school is that she sort of deigned to walk among them. She doesn't go to high school parties. She goes to college parties. But when Mm -hmm. she's at the college party, she's the small fish in the big pond. She's the one who gets coerced into giving oral sex. And there's the great moment afterwards when she looks at her reflection and spits at her reflection uh, with Mm -hmm. water. Mm -hmm. Uh, to show like the movie kind of giving you those moments of like not everyone is 100% one thing while also like they can still have moments where you relate to them and then they turn around and are a monster again and the musical is a little more like uh, she's popular Uh, but but that's that's me I do think they do a better job of turning Heathers into a musical than they did with Mean Girls but that is yeah oh my god yeah and also like are there four songs from Heathers that I listen to at the gym all the time yes do I yeah. run to Dead Girl Walking all the time oh my god who doesn't who doesn't Dead Girl running on the treadmill whenever we're De- bored 
I still prefer the movie and I prefer the whole origin of Heather and Veronica in the movie. I, I think they handled the complication of that friendship better in the movie than in the stage show. Yeah. Um, they also because, had a longer yeah, history. And that's what movies can do better. Like they can get into specific things. You can say so much in a scene where you spit at your reflection. We would not even see your spit on stage. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a trick of adaptation that, yeah, it gets more general. And I think it opens up for like deeper emotions because we're literally singing about them. Like there's, there's a, a win and a loss. And it makes sense that if I didn't like the movie, of course, I like the stage play. And if you loved the movie, of course, how could you love the stage play? Because yeah. it for sure changed a lot. It's a radical adaptation, I feel. Yeah. Um, it's almost a different show. With the there's, same also, there's also an economy in writing that, or there needs to be an economy in writing where you have to get so much across yeah. in so little time. And yes. so I just, <laughs> I rewatched Clueless last night with my mom for like the millionth time. Yes, love which, Clueless. It's great. And I tell everyone, like, if you want to, if you want, if you want to write, that is a great movie to watch for economic storytelling, because Mm. it gets across a lot in very little time. Everything sort of connects to each other. And uh, similar to what what we're talking about with Millie, where it's like, you know, it doesn't delve into a lot of the details of everything. Mm -hmm. Something like Clueless doesn't necessarily delve into the details, but it does give all the characters like a specific something that differentiates them from each other, mm-hmm. while also like not making it necessarily their defining trait. Um, mm-hmm. Like I was talking with a friend about it last night, who he's a little older than I am, and he remembers when Clueless came out when he was in high school, and he was like, "I remember loving that the gay character Christian wasn't just like a stereotype." I was like, "But also." His big thing is that he loves like Rat Pack era shit, which is like not a gay trope, but it's also so weirdly specific. Yeah. Um, and like <laughs> the de- it's the whole thing is just so crazy. And Millie kind of does a similar thing where like everyone has like a thing that yeah. defines them. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily, not, sorry, it doesn't necessarily, not that it defines them. It's not their whole personality, but it's the, it's mm-hmm. the thing that, keeps them from being part of the wallpaper you know yes exactly and it does enough and ultimately I think it achieves the most important thing that Millie does which is you said Matt like this show went up like after 9-11 and it's I think about this a lot right now in the world today because for some reason uh it feels kind of bleak out there right now the mm. only art I am interested in making right now is like joyful art like I write queer joy right now and I won't write anything else because like look around if you want darkness and right now I would go to the theater for joy and that is what they allow us to have like I don't think every musical needs to do everything I don't think Millie needs to like liberate or completely explore the plight of like the Asian man in 1922 it can't you know like that's a different show and I would watch that show for sure but we can't do everything we can be not racist that's very important however they wrote a good time like and it's it it is actually from watching it and I wasn't sure when I read the synopsis I was like oh yikes okay Matt let's see what this is and when I watched it I was like this is a lot kinder than I thought it would be from the Wikipedia summary because they are they are trying and they are letting us have a good time and also in that bootleg god you just feel the joy of Sutton Foster like she's she's doing something that means something to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's also becoming a star, which I'm sure also means something to her as well. And sure, persisted for forever to come. Um, but it's like, it was a dark time and you got to watch like a man dance out a window. And like, I don't oh, think yeah. you can understate how lovely that is. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's something that's interesting about how they're kind of 
refocusing it for 20 years later where to you know uh i have friends who you know work on book of mormon and when they were coming back from covid the writers like sat down with a lot of members of the company and they're like listen you know times have changed and we haven't been here to like kind of keep tabs on everything but like we're we want to go through the script line by line with you and tell you what our intention was with each line and then tell us how you think we can make that clearer um they don't they're like we're not going to totally rewrite the show because you know we we stand by the message of this but sometimes you know god is in the details and if we can make the details clearer then hopefully you guys can sort of uh you know get behind the show and that is something that i think is very important you know stand by your work while also acknowledging that times change and if you really want it to resonate uh people get so caught up with like revisions meaning like rewriting and 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 giving in and and giving up to peer pressure it's like no 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 no. you're acknowledging the the changing times and if you want your things to last sometimes you do have to find tweaks so that way people don't get caught up in the details and can get back to the message at at the center yeah and it's not even like you, you can make mistakes. Like, I feel that you're allowed and we don't all have access to the information we need to be like, you know, the best people. I'd like to think we're growing and changing and thinking all the time and improving. You can go back and just fix something. This is what I love about theater. Once you made a movie, the movie's done. Like you can't really go back in there and change a scene or switch out a line. But theater is new every time. We build it from the ground up with new bodies and new places and new spaces. And it's alive, it's easy to change. And if we can change, it should too. And then you get somewhere better. Like the key I think is not to be attached so much. Like you should never compromise the heart if the heart is good. Millie is has a good beating heart. I do believe that from somebody who watched it only for the first time this week. I think that you feel it. You know, they're trying to say something good. And so moving forward, as they continue to change it, because they did revise the script for encores, it will only get better. And that's what's special about theater for me. That's why I work in theater and not in movies, Mm. because it's alive, because we can change. And, you know, it makes me feel like I can change as a person. And I hope I do all the time. All the time. I think that you really hit the nail on the head. It's so hard to make mistakes now because people will define you by your mistakes. Yeah. And mistakes are made to grow from and learn from. Exactly. Uh, I mean, if you make the same mistakes over and over again, then it's like. Then stop. Yeah. Then yeah. It's like, girl, let me, let me, let yeah. me hit you with a book. Um, yeah. But <laughs> the, you know, people are so afraid to fail for fear of criticism and, and, and uh, judgment. And I think that's a very fair fear to have. And I've been trying to have that conversation with people when, you know, judgments, it's people want to try to get on the right side of a judgment. And I think that it's, you know, compassion is very important. And in order for people to grow, they have to make a mistake and learn from it uh, and not feel like they're always having to be on alert, if that makes sense. And yeah. Or to feel like you just, there's nothing that you can't come back from except for like murder or sex (sighs) trafficking, you know, aside from that, (laughs) You can, be oh better. you can apologize. Well, what if you're mur- what if you're murdering a sex trafficker? Mm-hmm. Well, then frankly, I think you can come back from that. Like, I think so too. 
I think so too. It's a trolley. Jesse, it's a trolley problem. And I'm not talking about Judy Garland and Mimi and St. Louis. Oh, girl, I'm minored in philosophy. We can talk about the trolley problem all day. (laughs) I just learned about the trolley problem the first time I watched The Good Place. The Good Place, yeah. Yeah, I think that's- I was like, wow, this is just for me, this show. They're really doing philosophy. Yay. And it's it's Kristen Bell eating shrimp. What is, that's not nichely for me. I don't know what is. They, another great job done in the world art today. I think um, you talk about how theater is alive and I think that's so important especially because while there is the text interpretation of text from performers from directors designers mm-hmm. allows it to continue to breathe film is so permanent because it's captured the way I think of film is you have to kind of look at it as a time capsule for each moment yes and mm-hmm. look back and sometimes you're very lucky and a time capsule can still hold up yeah. you know 60 years later and other times it doesn't, but you have to kind of go, okay, where were we at in 1964? What did we find funny? What did we find groundbreaking? How have we changed? How are we still the same? And that is so important. Like it is so important that we never forget the things that we have done because that's when history spirals back into a circle and we make the same mistakes forever and ever. We yep. have to know how it was. And that's why we get to have everything. This is what we were talking about, like wanting so many queer stories before we came on this. I want everything. I want accurate pictures of the past preserved irrevocably in film. And I want like an evolving art form that changes and gets better and closer to something good all the time. And mm-hmm. we get both things. I love being alive. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I don't know if you saw the new West Side Story. Did you? I have not yet. No. Okay. Do you? Is that something you're interested in seeing? Yeah, I'm interested in seeing everything there is to see. Is the truth okay. about me? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know your views on West Side Story as a musical on the original movie. Um, I will say the, the two movies weirdly work very well as sort of companion pieces. Like I have they heard should, that. they should, they should be released eventually on DVD, like as a two set, as a box you know? set, <laughs> as a box set, because. For everything that's amazing about the original, there are a lot of things about it that are like very yikes. And that part of that comes from the fact, you know, there were so many things about the show that were groundbreaking and and new and boundary pushing. And over the years, as we progress from that, as we like, Mm -hmm. as we expand our capacities, we can look back on what got us there and go, oh, that we've come so much further now. And this mm-hmm. movie is not necessarily going like, here's what's wrong about the original, but being sort of, you know, we've come so far and this story is so potent. Let's do it again. And mm-hmm. to sort of show how far we've come. So it's, it's really interesting time capsules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, th- this doesn't come back to million in any way, shape or form, other than the fact that what you said reminded me of it's that. It's thematically relevant. We're talking, like, you know, and the I mean, best art gets you to talk about big themes. Exactly. Uh, what is another song for Millie that you enjoy? We've talked about Forget About the Boy. We brought up Gimme Gimme for a hot second, which fun fact was written in La Jolla for Sutton Foster. Oh my God, I did not know that. The story that makes Janine, sense because the way she sings it, like, holy shit. Yeah, like you can't imagine Chenoweth singing that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the story that Janine DeSori tells in like every interview about the show that she's given uh said, you know, they were in La Jolla and they really needed an 11 o'clock number. I think they had one. It wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And Sutton was officially Millie by this point. And they were mm-hmm. they were in the thick of tech. And so they sang it for the entire team, including Sutton, like in the lobby that afternoon. Mm-hmm. And like it, and Dick singing his heart out and they finish it. And like, I, we think this is pretty good because like they said, you know, we wrote it for Sutton's range we, for her sound. 
and they do it and everyone goes, okay, um, so let's go back to teching. And they're like, everyone like ran away. Like we got no response whatsoever. We were pretty sure it was a dud. So we spent the whole day teaching it to Sutton and, you know, she was going to sing it at that very first preview with just a piano because they didn't have time to orchestrate it yet. And they're like, we're really sorry. So we're pretty sure this song is a dud because no one had a response, but like, go out there and give it your all. And then she like got a standing ovation and then went, okay, so I guess the song works. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm like, Janine, you wrote two of the best 11 o'clock numbers of the century, Gimme Gimme and Lot's Wife. truly believe although there are like it's a great hook and there are great lyrics in there it is the music that makes that number extraordinary Absolutely. when it gets big like that's janine who we are now on a first name basis with like putting She's a temporary this- of ours yeah yeah exactly she's we go all there. the time you go over to her place all the time yeah, for boozy brunch ouch yeah it's a wonderful you guys should come we'll see you there um, bottomless mimosas at tesori's oh my god she's so generous yes good pour um but when it opens up that song this is why we love musicals because like in music is emotion words cannot capture and i only do words and i believe this earnestly and that's why i love composers i love music because that's that song when it opens up it, musically like that's the heart of the show, right? Like that's the way that feels and words alone will not suffice. I mean, and Gimme Gimme is such a fun push and pull against like the honest openness of that music. And it's like, give it to me. <laughs> but I think there's something true about that. There's something about like real desire in there. Yeah. Well, cause if you think about it and you're, you're absolutely right, it's the lyrics are good but it is the music that makes it soar because lyrically speaking, there is no, structure to this song it is no (laughs) she comes to her conclusion very early in the song you know we have our little intro and then once she gets gets into the first chorus give me give me that thing called love the whole rest of the song is just that yeah she's not arriving somewhere yeah it's all an arrival (laughs) yeah it is not being alive where he's like bobby is uh brushing off the idea of being with someone until the last third Mm -hmm. when they embrace the idea of it Millie gets to the conclusion very early, but the music gets more confident and bigger. Mm -hmm. And as you said, more open. And so it's more that she, she, I think it's more that she gets more gun ho about it as this, as it continues. She's believing in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that bridge is where it really just sort of Mm -hmm. takes you off. And she goes, the, you know, I don't care if he's a nobody and just builds, it goes up, up, up. And then hits that mean. That's exactly where, yeah, it's crazy. It's so good. And that lyric, and what I love about that lyric too, is like, it doesn't need to be more than it is. Like sometimes I think lyrics get in the way of what's important if you're trying to be too clever or doing too much work. And I love clever lyrics, Sondheim is my God. But like sometimes just get out of the way so that she can sing that note like that. That tells us so much more. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Matilda, but I did have an argument with someone once about how they thought the lyrics sometimes got in the way. And I had to sit there and I had to go, I see what you mean. I It works for me, but 
but I see what you mean. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, that is a, you're right. That is a song where you have to get out of the way of the character and of the, of the emotion and just let it yeah. ride. And if you've got your name to sorry, like you, you're, you're, you got your back covered. Like you, <laughs> you do not need to do the heavy lifting here. Yeah. You let this be a musical and it is a musical. And I mean, even like Muzzy songs are so period mm-hmm. appropriate and like fun and jazzy. I mean, I, I, I love her second act song. The life is a holiday. Yeah. I'm talking June through May. Like it's just, it's a bop and it sounds good. And it, as you said, as we said before, it, fits so well into the rest of the song and becomes this tapestry it doesn't feel like a like it's all like a patch job like it feels so seamless and that it takes so much talent and intelligence and lack of ego too um Mm -hmm. as a as a creative you can't be like i want to make sure everyone knows that this is mine it's like you have if you are doing what's best for the show you yes. don't want your songs to be distinguishable from the rest of it. No mere flirtation, no marking time. I turned the corner when I met you, when I met you. Was our encounter planned? Destiny's guiding hand, fortune or fate, it's grand. The way you make me feel. As we said, Janine, she gets out of the way. She lets the storytelling lead. And that is why I think her work is so extraordinarily successful. I, I think when you, you, you were saying it so well, and I want to repeat it. When you no longer make it about you, it becomes about everyone, which in turn then makes it about you again. But like, exactly. in a way, but, but, in, but in a way that no one's like, rolling their eyes at you in a way yeah. where you can sit there and go, oh, I guess it is a little bit about me, huh? Like, it's- <laughs> And everyone oh, I- in the audience will feel the same way. They'll be like, oh, is this about me? Because mm-hmm. I relate. Because when you get at something true, I'll tell you what, everybody, like we're all the same. <laughs> we're all like lonely and sad and in love and happy. And like, it all comes from Hello Sondheim being alive. <laughs> I mean, speaking of Sondheim, I don't know about you. I had the biggest existential crisis of my life when he died uh, because I had so many emotions that I was confused by for a man I never met. And then I went on social media and saw so many people have literally the same feelings. And I felt both part of a community and alone at the same time. I was like, I've never felt more seen and more unspecial in my state at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that speaks to like, why Sondheim was so extraordinary, although this is really about Janine, but because he makes same. you feel seen, we're not we're not alone. And everyone out there and his art made a lot of people feel not alone. And that makes us all feel not alone and not special. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather feel not alone and not special because it just we're all special. They're special yeah. too. It's but you're not alone, Matt. You're not alone. I am here for you. I'm not in a onesie. I'm in a wheezy, a twosie. Yeah, you're in a piece of high fashion that frankly I am jealous of. I'm so mad I'm wearing pants right now. Uh, Well, someone's got to wear pants in this this episode. Uh, Well, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So final thoughts on Millie before we kind of uh, go into the end of this episode. Yeah, my final thought is like, Let's get that encore production. I want to see it. I want to see how they changed it. I want to see Ashley Park do this. I love Ashley Park. 
I want to see what they're planning because they already planned it. I think it is a show that deserves to continue and there mm. are things to fix and there are things to celebrate. And like, I, I was, I'm so happy that this happened, Matt, and you invited me here to do the show because now I know all about it. Yes, it's worth, it's worth knowing. It, I think it is very worth knowing. I mean, so the show opened in the Marquee Theater in April of 2002 to kind of a, a wild array of notices. Um, it's crazy to think that this show was kind of coming in on a wave of bad press when it opened. Like mm-hmm. you look at it and you go, this show, this show caused controversy in 2002. Um, yeah. Like weren't, weren't people, you know, dealing with other shit. But, <laughs> like you read the Ben Brantley New York Times review and he's so smug about it because it is such an earnest, you know, happy, good time. And he's like, it's just so try hard and you know he's not rude about Sutton necessarily it is definitely the the weakest review he's given her in her career it's interesting actually if you if you look at all the shows Sutton Foster has done on Broadway each review Ben Brantley gives her gets more favorable as time goes on like he's starting to recognize what makes her special so like Mm -hmm, he doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. like her and Millie because he doesn't like the show and then he sees Little Women and he's like still not a good show She's fine though. And then he sees Jazzy Chaperone. He's like, I don't really like the show, but like Sutton Foster, she, she just nails it. And then Young Frankenstein, he's like, get her another show. Like get, make her <laughs> make her a bigger star. And then Shrek, he's like, Jesus Christ, she's like the best Broadway star around. I'm like, finally, you get it. You've arrived a journey, but you got there. But he talked about this the scene where Cheryl Lee Ralph puts on the blonde wig and goes undercover. And he's like, what an embarrassing sequence for Cheryl Lee Ralph. And I go, are you so up your own asshole that you don't understand the humor and the actual like concept of that scene? Do you think that they're not in on the joke? Like mm-hmm. it is ridiculous. It is embarrassing in a in a sense, but not in a way that like an actor would be embarrassed, in a way that like no. the character should be embarrassed for themselves. Yeah. And it's like it's playful. Like you're letting a character have fun, an actor have fun, really. And we're having fun. I think sometimes people look down on fun because it doesn't feel smart enough. And it's like, stop. Can we just please have a good time? We don't need to intellectualize everything. And people also think when you let go of your ego, you're letting go of your dignity. And that's not true. No. Just like there's a difference between ego and confidence, there's a difference between ego and dignity. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can believe in yourself while also not taking yourself too seriously. Too seriously, absolutely. Yeah. Understand your value while also knowing that like you can be a part of the fun and not mm-hmm. and not tarnish yourself at all. In fact, I think when you allow yourself to kind of get a little down and dirty, it makes you a better person, it makes exactly. and more and a more admirable person. And it's like knowing your value that lets you do that because you know your value regardless of what you do. And so you can you can do things that are silly or stupid or embarrassing. Like what is there really to be embarrassed about? I mean, think about all the times when, you know, a major actor or actress made a cameo in some movie or TV show mm-hmm. that, you know, was super niche that made us all appreciate them all the more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's that where it's, you know, you don't have to think about like your legacy or your image. You're just doing what sounds fun and, you know, trying new things and, and again, allowing yourself to make mistakes and fall on your face sometimes for the sake of being better in the future. Mm -hmm. And 
something about that moment in the review just really wrote me the wrong way. And it, I don't, I never disliked Brantley as a critic. I thought he kind of got a bad rep at the time. And ironically now, so many people wax poetic about him now that he's gone. Like, oh, I miss his intelligent reviews. I'm like, you hated him when he was yeah. the critic. Um, <laughs> but because it's a frustrating review for me because every now and then I felt like Brantley would miss the mark. It's weirdly enough, yeah. specifically with Janine Tesori shows. Yeah. Um, the one that he got it was Fun Home. And when, and, he, and when you read his review in the New York Times for that, you're like, oh, how could you miss the mark so much on these other shows and get Fun Home so perfectly? Yeah. And isn't there something about like the style of it that it feels more intellectual or it's more like, it's not structured classically, which is like very interesting about it. But, yeah. you know, what gave him permission to like it in the way that he did? Um, also, uh, isn't it interesting how many like playwrights Janine Tesori got to write musicals? Like she wrote with Tony Kushner and David Lindsay Abair and Lisa Crone, who are just playwrights. And uh, David Henry Wong. Yeah, that's right. That's the, uh, thank you. You're welcome. It's just neat. Like how she can just musicalize that. Lisa Crone's lyrics are, I mean, we're not going to talk about Fun Home, but yeah. there's something about Janine that she can see the music in, yeah. in non-traditional and she's she's talked about this. She she prefers to write with playwrights. Um, and I mean, at the, and at the point of Millie, it was Dick Scanlon's first musical. He had only written mm-hmm. literature at that point. And mm-hmm. I think and everything musical he's done since then has either been like a revision or uh, like a collaboration of like a solo show. I believe he worked on Motown for a bit and then he got replaced. Mm-hmm. But, you know, did Everyday Rapture with Sherry Renee Scott, did a new book for Unsinkable Molly Brown. Millie was his first musical. You're right, like Janine, I think she really enjoys working with people who are intelligent and creative and think outside the box mm-hmm. and applying that to musical theater because it gives you something new. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's, and it's, so worthwhile yeah she she really finds a way to get playwrights to sing and i love yeah. that i love yeah. that very it's much. a rare and special talent like and we the public at large benefit for look uh-huh. at all the gifts she has given us absolutely and and also think of all like the different kinds of directors she has worked with you know we have mm-hmm. michael mayer george c wolf susan shulman uh sam gold like you know people who maybe are more from the play world like Sam Gold, people who are just like wildly brilliant and insane like George Seawolf, and then people Mm -hmm. who are a bit more of like a showman like Michael Mayer. It's just, she has no qualms about her collaborators so long as that they bring something to the table. Yeah, she goes towards the new, which is like, that's that's good theater, I think. We're so lucky to have her. We are. All right, trivia roundup here for you. Uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie was nominated for a multitude of Tony Awards. They won six, uh, including Best Musical. Can you name for me the no. other shows that it was up against for Best Musical that year? No. I mean, certainly um, You're in Town, right? You're in Town was the other one, yeah. Um, and then let me tell you, Matt, we did not discuss this before. I'm horrible at trivia. I know a lot of things. And when you ask them to me in a question, I don't know any things. That's fine. I also, I ask this every episode, pretty much <laughs> knowing that my guests will not get all of them if they even get one. So you got one and that was, you're, you do better than many others. But yes, you're in town was the other big one. It was also up against Mamma Mia. Really? Yep. And it was up against Sweet Smell of Success. Okay, okay. Which, fun fact, Ben Branley gave Mamma Mia a rave review, uh, but Mamma Mia also opened, like, a month after 9-11, and he's like, listen, 
I can't yeah. tell you. He's like, he's like, I can't tell you if I would be giving this a good review four months ago or four months from now. But in this moment, it's exactly what I needed. Hey, it's all about timing. And that absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. What's interesting wow. about Millie and Urinetown is that Urinetown won book, score, and director. And I can't mm-hmm. think of another Broadway musical yeah. that won those three and not musical. Yeah, I think it speaks to what's special about Millie. It's like, it's, it isn't like my absolute favorite like collection of lyrics or music or any one thing, but as a whole, it is like very charming. It's, mm-hmm. it's full of love and it's just like there. Yeah, I talked about this in the last series with the British Invasion, which Jesse has famously not listened to a single second of this podcast. So when she gets, when she finishes this with <laughs> I had me, to work on knowing what Millie was <laughs> before I came on the podcast and made an ass of myself. It's true. She's but like, next far- week, Matt, I'm going to stalk the hell out of you because now we're close friends and I care about everything you've ever said. Thank you very much. We are very close friends and I hope you stock everything I do. But uh, in the British Invasion, which is the series I did right before this covering British transfers, one makes a lot of those musicals so universally successful is that they're not so much about the detailed intellectual work so much as they are about embracing the potential of what musical theater can do, the theatricality of storytelling. Mm. And that's what sort of makes it a universal language uh, musical theater. And Millie kind of does that in a lot of ways. I think it's hard to make Millie universally successful because it is still very much about New York and it's a very American ideal of comedy. But musically speaking, and as a package, it is Mm. such an infectious like birthday cake that even if you don't get all the references or maybe it's not your brand of humor there is an energy about it that you can't deny yeah i think that's absolutely true we'd love to see it um i have a couple of questions one we already kind of answered earlier which was um the tesori tune what is your favorite song in this show yes which it still is forget about the boy and i'll tell you it's the it's the b section that does it for me yes when when everything starts overlapping oh my god yeah and they just you feel the push and pull of like forget about him but i can't because i love him and that to me is like welcome to life <laughs> the yes and the no the contradiction that i hate them because i love them i think they captured it in such a charming and funny way like oh, i'm laughing and i'm like and you're right and you see me barney shriver cpa um that's right barney <laughs> shriver cpa <laughs> we kind of talked about this also but uh the question is gimme gimme a revival, please. Uh, who would you want to see in this and how would you want to do it? We already mentioned Ashley Park in the Encores production. Are there any other actors or actresses around who you would love to see in this at any at any part, really? I'm sure yes, but I will say I think that the Ashley Park idea is the most interesting right now because I think you're, get, you're addressing the hardest thing about this show, like the thing that takes me out of it the most. And that is what I want addressed. Mm. And I love Ashley Park. I mean, God, sh- I think that she is going to go really far. She already um, kind of is going yeah, pretty she far. Right. She's she's pretty far. I think that she like deserves more than what she has gotten so far. Like I would like I've, to see her lead some shows. I would like to see her in a Netflix show that isn't internationally hate watched. But yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. But uh, yeah, no we'll one get there. She, yeah, no, she is a very special performer, and I am very pleased that her talent is being recognized. Um, I was trying to think like any actresses out there who I'd like to see tackle Mrs. Mears and what that would mean if an mm-hmm. actress of a non-white persuasion played, and not just like Asian, but what would, what would we do if like 
a Hispanic actress played that part and was doing up like an Asian stereotype, you know? Like, what does that mean? What does that do? What does that mean? And what does that do? I think I, and it's an interesting question too, because I do think there is like, there was a strength in it for me, like because she was white, I believed she would do this. Sure. So it's it's interesting when you complicate things, what new questions they bring up and how that ripples out through the whole show. I always support creating more roles for actors of color just because they should work. And like, there's still such a negligible amount of work out there for them in theater. And that is a damn shame. Um, but it's interesting, like the, the implications of like which character and yeah, what it means. And then and at some point, like if you start overthinking it too much, do you rob the show of its charm, you know? Yeah. Um, or do you start to you start to make a point about something this show is like never equipped to make a point about? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like if you kind of let go of as much baggage as possible, you can allow the show to float. But if you mm-hmm. keep hampering it down with points you're trying to make, it just mm-hmm. starts to shoot itself in the foot. Yeah, yeah, because it just doesn't. I like newspapers, you know, but I, this is a birthday cake, and I don't want a newspaper in my birthday cake. I want to just eat the cake. Listen, I like <laughs> I like mixing my metaphors, not my genres. <laughs> Thank you, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, raise me up. Do you think this show was properly appreciated when it came out? You know, I, I'm not even sure I have enough context to answer that. My impulse is yes, because I think I was a commercial success, and I think. It deserves it, it, some questioning, was, but no. I think it's what we call a hit flop. It ran for two years, but I don't think it made back its entire And made investment. no money. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated by hit flops. It's but they're odd. Reg- yeah. Yeah. They're odd. They are odd. I'm surprised this didn't make money. Um, although now I'm sure it does because it's I'm sure it's popular. I bet with high schools and stuff, big, you know, you did it at the age of 16. There you are. So uh, we don't really don't have to talk about that anymore. <laughs> I've I've met, just I mentioned this one it. last time. <laughs> I mentioned it, so I never ever have to mention it again. Although that production had some people in it that uh, some of you might know now: Samantha Missell, she a fiddler on the roof fame, was our Millie. Oh my gosh, that's Jordan crazy. Firstman, Jordan Firstman, he of the Instagram uh, impressions, was our Jimmy. Yeah, yeah fun times. Anyway. <laughs> you young Matt, look at you. Go. And then there's me in my onesie. So the most famous of all, the most, the most famous of all. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Caroline it or change it. Is there anything about this show you'd want to alter? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you like yes. the title for that question? I love the title for that. That really did it for me, Matt. My respect for you just shot sky high. <laughs> Out of the park. <laughs> I love it and this is the thing we're allowed to have fun and be idiots and like that's just my exact kind of wordplay because I too am a Broadway nerd um yes I would change Boom. it but I would not change everything I would not change most of it I would change this one important thing that I think they just have not cracked yet and that we just can do a little bit better even if it's just by like it might not be adding anything it might just be cutting a little bit like sure. we could just move move through it a little bit more quickly so we don't sit in any moments that start to create a tone where it's like, mm, what are we laughing at? Are you sure? Maybe stop. Is there a song in this show that you would cut? I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm. I will say for me, mm-hmm. while the song is dramatically necessary and when I see it live, I always enjoy it, but I do mm-hmm. skip They Don't you Know. You skip it. I skip they don't know the most. Uh, yep, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. That absolutely makes sense. Yep. Um, but I, but 
But you probably I, you can't cut it, right? You probably need that. Yeah, no, you do need it. I, I, I don't think I'd actually cut. It. I would, I, I just skip it when I, uh, see it. I would, I would maybe for my Carolina change of thing. I would. This is a hot take. I would maybe rewrite how the other half lives, which I do think is important. Yeah. Especially yeah. like you need that bond between Miss Dorothy and, and Millie. I love that that friendship is there and, and remains yeah. throughout the show. It never gets dropped. Thank goodness. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but that song I think could be a little more, uh, a little peppy or it's a little too soft shoe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because the original Miss Dorothy is not my favorite of actresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe someone a little more personality played the role, but yeah. then you also ask yourself like isn't part of the point of historically is that she's a little personality free (laughs) (laughs) like yeah you've got millie who's so much and dorothy who's like okay Mm -hmm. yeah and isn't that why people keep hitting on her the whole show and where he freaks out when she's like i think i'll cut my hair and he's like no (laughs) well I, I I do love that sequence because it all that too and it does sort of (laughs) foreshadow that their love is not true is not deep yeah which is why it's so great they changed the ending and it's funny and fun like I think that that's those are things that are real like there's something always true at the bottom here except for the race thing but you know <laughs> they were that clear effort was made we're taking steps yeah um, I also for, it up. I also want to make a quick mention I do love that uh when they go to the speakeasy with Jimmy in act one that the entire dance sequence is done to Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Yes. Oh, I was obsessed with that sequence. I thought it was so funny. And I just love that whole completely unnecessary plot point that you would never cut, which is like, God, can't we just get drunk one time, please? Because it's it's prohibition. Mm-hmm. And they and Millie's like, we're in New York. I want to get drunk. All these girls like I've never had spirits before. Yeah. I want to get drunk. Uh, Millie like has her job now and she's she's like I am going to paint the town red especially since like I start work tomorrow like mm-hmm. I have one night to let loose mm-hmm. um, it's it's a great like sex and city get your zhuzh moment yeah. you know and it made me like Jimmy that was the first moment I liked him was when he was like yes I know where the liquor is and yes I will take you there I was like alright Jimmy now I'm into you like let's go take us to the liquor yeah and also and you it's the moment where you see he kind of looks at Millie and through Millie women in general, I suppose, like in a new lens, because when he first meets her, he's like, go home. And then when he sees her a week later, he's like, didn't I tell you to go home? She's like, yeah. And I didn't. And look at me now. And he's like, Mm -hmm. huh. He's like, maybe I don't always know better. And it's, it's, it's nice. I like it when people learn. Yeah. We love and we we learn, grow, change. We're here. Yeah. But what what does he need with love? What indeed. So actually, so speaking of concise, storytelling and like saying so much and so little you have what do I need with love right which is just like him going back and forth of you know I like her but no I can't do it and then the last two lines tell you all you need to know when he says I've got it good but now I've got it bad oh oh my god when I realized that was happening I was like yeah <laughs> it's really smart it's really smart writing Ooh, and it hits it, a nice big right. money note like yeah uh, it's just, yeah. it's, it's what musical theater can do. Jesse, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining today. Right back at you, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Sheer delight. Truly, Sheer truly. delight. Um, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Oh my gosh, you can find me at jessiefields.com. You can see my show, Charlotte Lucas is 27 and Not Dead, this summer at Piper Theater in your very own hometown of Brooklyn or my hometown of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm uh, at JS Field Theater on Instagram if you want to see dumb shit that I post about what I do. 
Love to see it. If you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. Uh, I do have a Facebook that is mostly for friends and family. I did upload TikTok. I hate it. I'll be deleting it shortly. I don't have Twitter. Uh, and if you like the podcast, follow us, subscribe to us, rate, review. Uh, we Ooh. did get, actually, we did get two new reviews that I will like to read out loud just now for a quick second. Yay. So I can give these people their proper dues. Uh, one is the four-star review, but <clears throat> let me do the four-star review first. <clears throat> Cue light in the Piazza music. Four stars, Matt, make this one change is the, is the title. <laughs> Found this a few weeks ago and have listened to tons of episodes. I keep asking myself why I feel uncomfortable slash frustrated when I listen to it. And I think I know why it's the structure. Matt, <laughs> you intro the guest, have some fun banter, and then they disappear for what feels like a really long time while you give backstory. Think episodes would be really <laughs> improved if you give the backstory first alone and for the love of God, time box yourself and then introduce the guest. It avoids the constant friction of you wanting to do this whole intro and guests jumping in or sitting quietly, which is awkward because they just spoke for a while with you. Tighten this, the episodes will be better. Well, we kind of changed that, right? Today? I think so. Yeah. I well, abandoned for one minute. I felt very cared for. You were very cared for. And then this one, five stars. Love it. I love the perceptive and encyclopedic deconstructions of the musicals in question. At first, I was skeptical of the lengths. Two hours? Really? Nothing needs to be two hours except fine meals, hot sex, and anything by Tony Kushner or Stephen Sondheim. But when I listened to the dissection of History Boys, I realized it was pure love of learning, right down to the Warhol-esque solipsisms. I think I said that last word incorrectly, but it's because I'm an uncultured fuck. Some words you just read and then sometimes you have to say them and it's like, ah. Yeah, exactly. I am, it's, June is busting out all over, all over the bella bella bags. <laughs> and the heels and the Jesus and the bleezes and the boozes. Um, thank you so much That's for listening, beautiful. everybody, to this episode of Tesori Hour. Follow us next week as we get into what might be Tesori's masterpiece, Caroline or Change. Woo! We can't wait to talk about it and all the genres that she crams into two and a half hours. Mm, mm. That woman's like convention. What's convention? Yeah. Changing it up. I can't wait to listen. I can't wait to listen either. <laughs> so I think what we're going to, so every week, Jesse, we close out with a nice Broadway diva. We've done sudden, obviously. We've done, cha- we've done channel with, obviously. So I think what we're going to do is, we're going to close out with one Miss Ashley Park. Oh, Ashley Park. Yeah. Um, and once again, thank you so much for coming on, Jesse. Thank you for listening, everybody. And again, check us out next week when we get into Caroline or Change. And that is it. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. Take us away, Ashley. Bye. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. 
part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.